Yo, 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 and welcome back to another episode of the Nick and Griff Show. Today is Saturday, April 23rd. It is 8.41 a.m., and we are excited to be here. Griff, how was your week, man? I know you you just got a haircut. You said you were going to tell a story. We got to start the podcast to tell a story. How's the haircut? What's the deal? The haircut was fine. So two things. I go to this place called Hammer Nails, so I don't know if you know what that is. It was on Shark Tank at one point. Okay. So what they do is they charge a monthly subscription. You get two, you either get a haircut and they do like manicures and pedicures. So you can do two services a month. It's like 65 bucks or something. It's kind of nice. The haircut's usually really nice. You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. they do the whole head massage thing, the shampoo it out. You know what I'm saying? It's kind of luxurious, you know, it's kind of nice. You go there, you're like a member. It's cool. But yesterday I go. And I don't ever pick a stylist or, you know what I'm saying, like a barber or whatever, because they all do a pretty good job. Like, I, I mean, like, I, I honestly, my mentality is like, I get the haircut, but like, you got to have the confidence of a new haircut, regardless how the haircut looks. You know what I'm saying? So just go out there and rock it. Like, it really doesn't matter. Don't make them feel bad. But I get my haircut yesterday. And at the end, she, like, usually they'll just like dip your dip your ass back, give you massage your head, give you the little shampoo. But she asked. She was like, do you want that? And I was like, I was like, well, I felt real awkward at that point in time. I was like, well, I don't know. Like, if you don't want to do it, like, I'm not going <laughs> to ask for that, even though, like, I'm pretty sure it's just like a haircut. But That's funny. I ended up just saying kind of no, because, like, the conversation, I'm a talker during my haircuts, you know what I'm saying? The conversation was, it was all right. It kind of kept dying, you know what I'm saying? And mm-hmm. I can keep it keep it going if i need to and i just was like yeah i got to the car though and sierra was like you have hair all over your head i was like yeah she didn't do the whole wash but you know oh, what I'm saying? So, you did, so you ended up not getting the wash and everything yeah i said no i was just like no i'm i'm good like the haircut was fine i was like i don't really want to sit here longer and like it was already kind of awkward so i was like you know what i'm saying like usually they don't ask but she asked and it made me want to say no mm. i don't know maybe i'm just soft but yeah, it's, uh, it's just tough. It's tough out here in the streets. You know, I always like to get my hair washed after I got a haircut just because um, it, you know, that, you know, as a dude, then, then you don't have to worry about like all the excess hair, at least all of the excess hair. You know, I mean, there's still like you really you like you have to take a shower, you know, to really get all of that off of you. Um, but man, the wash right after it, it really is a helpful deal. But yeah. the barber that I go to now. They don't, they don't do that at all. So I'm like always rolling out of there, just hair, you know, coming, coming off of me like a, like a cloud behind me, you know, need the wash. But I've been going to the same place for, uh, about two years now at this point, uh, here at Bon Ray is the barbershop, um, here in Tulsa. Great vibes. Same, same chick cuts my hair. Shout out to Cass. Um, going in there, headed in there today to get trimmed up today. So. Um, but Hey, uh, let's hop into this. Uh, let's hop into this market check, man. We've had, uh, have you seen, have you seen some of the stuff that happened with, uh, with Netflix here just, uh, over this past week? And I guess really over the past couple of months, but what, uh, what have been your thoughts on, on some of that stuff? I think it's interesting. It dropped what, like 35% or something pretty wild. Um, yeah. I think these legacy players and I think Netflix kind of is, I think Netflix is more of a legacy player than they are uh, new. You know what I'm saying? Like they displace blockbuster, but 
I don't know, like you tell me since when has Netflix done anything to catch your eye or keep you a subscriber or put oh, out yeah. content you want to see, you know? I just think it was inflated, and I think this is something that can happen to a lot of these <clears throat> centralized, you know, tech platforms. Because why? TikTok is taking people's time. YouTube is taking people's time. Why get on Netflix when they're charging you $20 a month now and they're trying to crack down on password sharing? Why bother? Just go to YouTube, <laughs> go, to, go to TikTok, go learn something. I think people are learning more stuff. I don't know. Those are my kind of thoughts. I don't know what you think, but it's not yeah. that surprising to me that some of these, I think everything's so inflated. Netflix, I mean, like Twitter might get bought by our boy, but it might go private, which I think would be better for it, in my opinion. Yeah, um, I think that would be that, I don't know. I'm trying to think of legacy players that have been around for a while in this like tech, like Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, Netflix. Um, yeah. For what, man? Like we know young people, we know what we want to use. Well, and I guess, uh, I guess to add on to the Netflix deal, I guess they, for the first time in like four years or I don't know, I, I didn't really read into it too much. I wasn't really too curious about it, but um, I guess Netflix for the first time in however long reported um, a net loss in oh, yeah. subscribers, which it was, was like 20 uh, million, wasn't it? Or obviously not know. good for Netflix. So I don't want to say there, the wrong there number. You are. I don't want to say the wrong number. Was it 20 million? I don't know. I'm it? not sure. It was something pretty substantial where it was like, oh, like everybody's off of Netflix, which I kind of feel that way. I was watching, although I was watching The Witcher last night. I don't know if you've seen that. I have not. Dude, first first episode, I mean, pretty good. So maybe Netflix is winning in my mind like yesterday, (laughs) but I haven't watched a Netflix show in a long time. I see. So the S&P 500 looks like we kind of cruised up a little bit. And then the back half of the week, they fell off pretty sharply. So um, kind of zooming back out here, looking at the year, though, um, you know, kind of kind of similar chart to that to that one week. Right. Um, is up, you know, and then here here to the, to the back end of the year, I guess it's looking year to date. Right. Or no, this isn't year to date. This is one year. What, what time? What's up with the VIX? I think the VIX is always a really good. Yeah, the VIX is uh, for sure cruising up here. I mean, th- this typically uh, will trend the exact opposite of of the S and right. I mean, it's it's pretty <clears throat> accurate, pretty accurately inverse um, to to the S and P. But yeah, so the VIX is cruising up for sure. Which is, if you guys don't know, the fear index. Um, the higher the VIX, the it's the the Chicago Board o- Options Exchange Volatility Index is what it's uh, actually titled. Um, and and it's it's kind of supposed to be some rough idea of fear in the market. So the higher the VIX is, the more fear and uncertainty there is in the market. So whenever the market goes down, the VIX tends to go up. Uh, so I guess just kind of another way to, to track what may or may not be happening in the markets. Um, and uh, Bitcoin, we had uh, a nice little cruise up, came back up to 42.8 and then fell off again. You know, I think it's interesting. I've heard a lot of people talking about how Bitcoin is trading so similar to risk on assets and, oh, it just tracks the stock market. And you know what? I don't think that there's any reason that it that it's not right now. And I think that a lot of people treat Bitcoin as a risk on asset in a speculative investment and uh, much like much like people do whenever they're trading in the markets. And so I think it makes sense for it to, to track it. Uh, pretty close at this point. Obviously, it's not exact, uh, 
Um, but I think that that makes sense. Do you agree with that or, or no, Griff? Yeah, I just think when it comes to uh, Bitcoin and what has kind of happened since 2020, you know, that last parabolic bump to like 68 when it initially went that way, <clears throat> people were getting stimulus checks, man. Life was very fake. I think it's more so impressive that we've been capitulating between like really 30 and 50, 30 and 40 for a while. Um, I think it's sure. I mean, like, I, I guess it trades with other things, but as we know, one Bitcoin is one Bitcoin and the network is been growing very steadily throughout this uh, volatility. And I think they're all just really good buying opportunities. I don't know, you know, what is going to be the first thing that triggers the big next Bitcoin push. It's going to take some huge macro players, but we obviously understand we're talking about bond markets. We're talking about housing markets. We're talking about Rothschild money, which they have trillions People in this world, unfortunately, in my opinion, unfortunately, entities, central authorities have enough money in today's world where they'll be able to put $2 trillion in Bitcoin like that. And you'll see the price just go right on up. I mean, the supply squeezes are going to be insane when some of these people get in. But where it's trading at right now, I mean, I think it's just good for plebs to understand like ourselves one bitcoin will always be one bitcoin and that's really why you should be in it you shouldn't be in it for oh it's going to go to seventy thousand. who gives a shit Seventy thousand is not that's still we're still really early maybe when it gets to like uh cent sat parity that's when you start looking at other things but i don't know like look at thank thankfully this is we're pulling this up today look at mortgage prices look at the average value of a home, I think, is over five hundred thousand. But the average sales price being over four hundred twelve thousand, seventeen percent year over year, that's called inflation. I was listening to the Lex Friedman podcast with Michael Saylor, mm-hmm. and he always talks about his nineteen thirty house example, where the house was worth like, I don't know, I think it was like thirty thousand dollars or something in nineteen thirty, which was like super expensive or big property. But now it's worth like millions like this property is worth like so much money the reference and he was like so what is inflation is it (laughs) is it what the government is telling you in cpi or is it what's actually happening in the real world and his argument he was making that argument pretty big he was like inflation people just don't understand cpi is not inflation ppi is not inflation that is somebody trying to just like hide what real inflation is that is a central authority trying to mask what is a very ugly truth and that is inflation in some in some markets is probably what like 20 30 40 percent year over year right now the housing market is way outpacing inflation you know like there's a lot of things out of balance and out of whack cities let's see here i saw something funny the simpsons is based on a dude who works at a nuclear power plant and a stay-at-home mom, and they own this big old house, and everybody's yeah. like, yeah, "What world are we living in?" Where like that's not even close to feasible anymore. Yeah, yeah. So check it that check that out here. The median sale price four twelve four hundred twelve thousand dollars. That's up seventeen point one percent year over year. Um, number of homes sold five hundred forty eight thousand. Says that it's down seven point eight percent year over year uh, at this. 
At this point, national average 30-year fixed mortgage rate is 4.2%, up 1.1%. Also over here on the FRED website, uh, and this is this is a one-year chart. So looking back in uh, uh, 2021 here, you can see the rates, you know, fluctuating, fl fluctuating around that 3%, you know, down to, you know, 2.77 there looks like, like was the low. We zoom out to a five-year. Yeah, so I mean, you can see, you can kind of see as you zoom out, like how, how quick this thing is es escalating here pretty quick. Uh, we're up to 5.11% there. And, uh, and, and this is the 30-year fixed rate mortgage average in the United States. So obviously this depend, depends on your credit, depends on all those types of things. But I mean, uh, that stuff is, is pretty wild. Can we get a five-year look from you on that? Oh, five-year look. Yeah, hold on. Uh, on the mortgage rate, you're saying? Yeah, just I think there's just a five-year little button right there, an extra year, one yep, year. There you go. That's your five-year look. Is it delayed on me? Nope, that's five-year. We're looking back here in 2017 up to 2022. I don't think it's coming on the screen. Oh, honestly. really? Yeah, I think that's all that says. Oh, what sorry. is it five oh, years sorry, ago? Sorry. Oh, there we go. Oh, you're yeah. good. There you go. And they say Bitcoin's volatile, man. And this is at the rate in which you can borrow money like that. And that isn't that I mean, the rate at which you should be able to borrow money uh, in a 30 year fixed mortgage rate. In my opinion, you can even argue that it was never really a good idea. It's something that started really in like depression times in America before the 40s, but got really popular in 1971 once people started to not have enough money to just buy a home outright or place a huge down payment on a home per se. 30-year rates being as, you know, coming and going like a roller coaster like that, doesn't everybody kind of like, it doesn't seem weird to people at this point? To me, it really does, but I don't know. Like, Yeah. I, no, know so I know uh, another piece that um, I was talking to a guy here in Tulsa this week, and we were talking about some of the things that are happening in the, in the housing markets. He's a commercial real estate guy, and you know, was kind of picking his brain about a couple of things. We, we were talking about commercial real estate properties, talking about um, single family residential properties. And uh, one thing that he was saying that that is the absolute truth is that as the cost of money increases, right, as, as mortgage rates increase, um, you know, and, I, and there's probably some type of uh, there may be some type of, um, you know, common, you know, for every X percentage increase in interest rates that that can roughly amount to X amount uh, dollars added to your monthly mortgage cost. Right? right. And so he was talking about as the price of, of homes are increasing due to what's happening with inflation. Um, and then as interest rates increase in the cost of money to actually buy the inflated home, uh, we're just going to start seeing tons and tons and tons more people get priced out of the market, um, leaving, hopefully not, hopefully this doesn't happen, but leaving the big guys like BlackRock are out, you know, buying single family homes as investment properties. Um, and, you know, our boy Klaus Schwab with, uh, with the IMF or no, no, with the World Economic Forum, you know, like you'll, you'll own nothing and be happy about it or whatever. And it's like, oh boy. So ho you, hopefully, uh, hopefully, the, the normal buyer doesn't just get priced out of the market and then you've just got institutional buyers buying everything as investments. I mean, that seems a little, a little scary, but I mean, 
I don't do know. Do you think that it should be? This is a fair question. I feel like <clears throat> at this point. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like it? There should be legal. If, if we're going to have a central thir- authority, if the game is as fixed as it already is. Okay, because just remind the climate that we're in right now. This isn't some free market society, do what you want kind of thing. It's just not because it's not for me and you, but it is for other people. It's a it's a money thing. Should the government place a cap on how many uh, like commercial properties or more like residential properties you can buy to drive that price up in the housing market? Because like you're saying, these big players just have so much money. It, as long as they can borrow on a 30-year time frame, 5% is not enough. 7% is not enough. It's going to take a pretty big number for them to go, oh, okay, we don't even want to buy at this price anymore. Because everybody needs somewhere to live. Everybody's going to have to rent. It is, a, it is American real estate has been a, as sure of a thing as it fucking gets over a 100-year time frame. We're talking about holding your value to your grandkids till they're dead. Right. And that's really, it is important to some people. It's important to me. You want to be buying something that in a hundred years, it still has its value. There is still security within that market. Now, now we're getting into the sailor stuff here. So you, I know you, you listened to slash watched a lot of the Lex Friedman, Michael Saylor podcast. Um, and I've seen some clips from it, and it was really good. But what uh, what were some of your key takeaways from that podcast you listened to this week? Well, I think one of the key takeaways is that the network is important and that Bitcoin can't be copied. Um, but before, before, almost before we get to that, I just want to ask you, it's like, should they be able to buy up all those residential properties? Is mm-hmm. it uh, in the current economic system we play in, is that fair? Is it equitable? Is it good for our market? You know, it's a very good argument to be very bad. I mean, even BlackRock would have to admit that if everybody's just pissed off in like 10 years and they don't own anything and we all hate them, the American people have been known to get their way one way or another. Like, that's all I'm saying. So do you think think it's something that they should put limits on? Do you think it's something that they should be watching? More than they're obviously, they watch Bitcoin and everything that miners are doing. How about BlackRock buying up everything? How about Schwab buying up everything? How about, honestly, even just very wealthy people buying up a a hundred properties? You know, I understand there's an incentive behind it because government housing is expensive, but money is also fake. Like, I just, I don't know. This kind of goes into the conversation that you and I have had several times before. Um, You know, this system is, and whenever I say this system, I'm referring to really the the credit economy that we we operate in right it's all it's all about leverage it's all about arbitrage and leverage um if i could go out and borrow x amount of dollars uh for you know call it five percent ten percent whatever your number is um and then but then i can but then i can take those dollars and i can go put them in the investment xyz and i can earn 30 percent of my money or 20 percent of my money i'm just making numbers up here to make it easy uh, well, then then I win that game. Right. If I can buy money for five percent and I can make 10 percent, well, then I'm making a net five percent profit. Right. That's what that's what this whole credit economy is built upon. And uh, so I, I think it is interesting. Right. So so we talk about for guys like us. Right. You're, you're 25. I'm 24. Moving forward into the future. I mean, are, are we are we still going to be operating in the same economy that so many generate that that I guess I would think like 
our our parents, you know, probably the generation just above us. Uh, and, and I would think, well, let's think here. I would say probably people up to. Yeah, I don't know if I put an age on it, but um, anybody that's taking advantage of the real estate system in, in, in the credit economy type type aspect, right, the arbitrage methods, which this is what the vast majority of people are doing. Right. I mean, if you're if you're a commercial real estate investment com- company, um, you don't you don't save a bunch of cash and invest it. Right. You go out and you get investors and they put money into the deal and then you take your investors money and and you put probably some of your own money or you know it depends on depends on how you want to structure it right do you want to pay yourself via the pro- the profits from the business or do you want to put your money in the real estate deals and make money from the real estate deals you're doing that's a whole other conversation but what they're going to do is they're going to take investors money maybe some of their own and they're going to use that as their down payment and then they're going to leverage themselves and they're going to go get a you know, 80, 80% loan to value. Right. And then they're going to leverage themselves into buying that property. Um, and then it's going to appreciate, which widens their equity spread. They're going to pay, I say they, the tenants of the actual investment space, the investment property, whether it's a single family or commercial, whatever properties we're looking at, those tenants will pay down the, uh, the principal on the loan, which further widens the equity gap. And you get to collect cash flow along the way. That's the system, right? Um, do we, are we going to get to grow up and play in that same system? I don't know, man. We've talked about this because dude, things, things are, things are getting very frothy, right? That's kind of a, a term I've seen tossed around Twitter a little bit here is that things are getting frothy in the sense that, man, there's a lot of leverage out there and, uh, we start getting too far over leveraged. Um, that that's gonna, that's gonna cause some big issues, right? Ray Dalio is a big proponent of, uh, lever, uh, what is it? He calls it, uh, deleveraging's, uh, credit deleveraging. And, uh, he talks about micro cycles and macro cycles, um, as far as the debt cycles go. And man, I mean, I don't know, uh, to go back to your original question, right? You're talking about, should we put a cap on how many properties you, properties you can buy? I don't think that that's a good idea. How many properties you can buy to rent. Yeah, I, I think that that's a I think that that's a tough idea because you've got to take it out to the nth degree, right? Uh, you think about statistics. I mean, if if you limit if you limit some entity's ability to purchase property, then you've got to limit everybody's ability to purchase property. I would I would think, right? I mean, that's that's like the the you know because I'm not a believer in uh, equity of outcome. I'm a believer in equity of opportunity. Right. Not everybody should get the same outcome. Right. You sure. get what you what you've put into it. Right. You you should you should reap what you sow. And if you're not and if you're not if you're not planting seeds, if you plant five seeds, you don't get you don't have the equality of outcome to, you know, the 10 seeds that the guy next door planted. Right. You know, you planted five. That's all you get. Right. So um, I think it's it's kind of interesting. Right. Because. Cause you and I could start, you know, Nick and Griff show investment LLC and we could go out and start buying investment properties. Right. But then if we had implemented some rule where large corporations, let's just think about BlackRock. If we were to implement some type of law or regulation that says, Hey, you guys as this size of a company, I mean, I don't, I don't even know how you'd write that, you know, but then again, it's like, okay, well, we we're huge on property rights in, in the United States. Uh, thank God. Um, 
so then is that just for is that just for the individual or is that you know do businesses are, are businesses included in that and you know for the for the sake of the conversation that we're having here is there like some size cutoff of of once your business hits this size and you then you can only buy this you can only hold this many properties i i don't know like i get I where you're going with it would be a really complex thing to do i'm really just arguing it in on the podcast mm. a lot of it was about inflation yeah yeah, well, I mean, you could you can go you can go all the way back to the source of this deal, right? Fix the money, and and you fix so many other things. I mean, if if we operated on a gold standard and credit was not uh, it wasn't a credit economy or credit society that we operated on, I think that that the landscape of where we're sitting right now would be significantly different, right? And I think that's like I guess the argument to be made is that. <clears throat> Out of every 100 people in America, just randomly, right? Everybody talks about the top 1% and the top 0.1% and so on and so forth. I think it's fair to ask um, that question only because because I'm a free market. I, I want it to be a free market. Buy whatever the hell you want. Buy as much as you want. I don't want to get that misconstrued. It's more to me just seems like I see it on Twitter by honestly a lot of more liberal-leaning people. And though they don't understand money and the question usually gets shot down because of an explanation like you just gave. But I just feel like it's a fair question because these big entities are the reason why demand is so high. Are the most of the reason why inflation is a lot higher than what was it, 8.5%? The housing mm-hmm. market's up 17.7% year over year. And it's not transitory. If you can, you can take a look at a lot of, uh, housing prices on charts over the 50 year and it's just far outpaced wages it's far outpaced more than wages it's far outpaced even what middle america can pay for a home and i do think like at a certain point in time wasn't the government's job to make it equitable for everybody right like the government's job is to be um to protect us to facilitate certain things but to really be as like discreet as humanly possible I mean, that's really what it's supposed to be. And so I just see this as much a very fair question because, I don't know, things are so out of whack at this point. There are no tax incentives for broke people. Like, how are broke people supposed to take advantage of the tax system and, you know, go buy up some housing and do the same thing? You can't, really. Or you have to take up much more risk. And not everybody should have to be, you know, the riskiest investor to just break even or to just keep pace with the housing market. I mean, 17% year over year, you have to be pretty damn good to make your money keep up with that housing market. Or you have to make more money year over year. You have to get a new job every year. You have to get a pay raise every year. You have to sell more every year. And it's just not feasible for everybody. So that's the only reason why I feel like it's a fair question. Okay. So here's something to, to keep in mind as well, whenever we're thinking about terminology here. So equality, um, this is from Rise Town. Uh, what is it? Rise to rise towing, whatever.org, whatever this website is. Um, we could look at a couple more, but equality simply means everyone is treated the exact same way, regardless of need or any other individual difference. And equity, on the other hand, means everyone is provided with what they need to succeed. So I think equity versus equality are two, uh, two big pieces you got to think about when it's, 
when we're thinking about just terminology and how, how we're how we're trying to grasp what's going on. So again, my thought is I, I don't want equality of outcome. I want equity in opportunity, right? Um, you know, because dude, this, I mean, this is this this is just straight up in incentive structures, you know. I mean, I don't know if you've ever heard the story. Have you have I ever told you the story about um I think it's uh, and I don't know if the examples for socialism or communism or I'm not super well read on on how those structures like what the what the tiny differences of those things are. But here's a story. Um, there is a, a group of kids and they're they're in school and um, and they're learning about these different political um, and economic structures. Right. And so they're going through whether I don't remember if it was communism or socialism. I think it was more socialism or maybe Marxism. Um, they're talking about they're talking about those things. And the kids were like, hey, this would be great. Like if we if everybody had everything right, if, if we all had um, if we could all pitch in and we could all uh, no, I say that it's not all pitch in. Um, either way they get into it. Right. And she's like, okay, you guys want to, you guys want to check out and see how this system would work in real life. Um, let's just go ahead and implement it here in the classroom. And they do it with their grades. So they, what they did is they, they would, uh, do their, their school work like normal, right. They do their homework. They take their, uh, they, they, um, go through and learn whatever they're, they're learning at that point. Right. And uh, then they would take their exams and then what they would do is they would average the exams out. Right. You know, some kids were up on, on like the 90, 98 percent, you know, on their on their exam. Other kids get like 10 percent on their exam. Well, then they average it all out and it comes out to like a 75, or 80 or whatever it was. And then everybody gets that grade. That's what everybody gets. Right. So the kids at the bottom were, were juiced about it because, you know, they got 30, 40, 50 percent, but then they got raised up to the average of 75, 80, whatever it is. And then but the, but then the kids at the, at the top. Right. They were kind of pissed off because they studied. Right. They put in the time and, and work to study to get a, a 96 or a 98 or 100 or whatever it was. But then they got brought down to that average. So then in week two, they, they go through, they do their homework, they study what they've got to study and then they take their exam. And this is obviously a super simplified example, but they take their exam and uh, then week two, the same thing happens, right? Some kids did really well and they got brought down to the average. Some kids did really bad and they were excited because they got brought up to the average. Well, then then come week three, uh, these kids at the at the top, they started getting a little pissed off. They were like, if I'm going to put all this work in and I'm not going to get the grade that I've been working for. Well, then I don't really want to. I don't really want to study all this hard. You know, like I don't want to get a 98 if I'm just going to be brought down every single time. Right. So then what happens? They don't study as much. Maybe instead of getting that 96 or a 98, they get a, an 80 or an 82. Well, then that, that lowers the average. Right. And that happens over several cycles and the average lowers far enough to where everyone is failing. Right. Because nobody is incentivized to do anything for themselves. Right. Which is which is a huge uh, which is the huge dichotomy that seems to be from uh, from uh, being more uh, liberal versus conservative, right? Is this? It seems to be uh, a shift between it's society's responsibility versus the individual's responsibility, right? And I think that the individual's responsibility is a big piece because if you fix the individual, then then society 
can operate on itself, right? Which is the free open market capitalistic society. Uh, I was reading in um, in the Bitcoin standard, uh, I think it was last week, and, and was going back through the parts where he's, he's talking about the government setting pricing. And he, he said he, he was talking about basically the differences between a centrally planned economy and a market driven economy. And in the sense that if you're a centrally planned economy and you're going to set rates, you're going to set prices, you're going to set all those things, right? Where do you, where do you get your information to make sure that you're setting prices at the proper, at the proper level, right? Because it also fluctuates with supply and demand, right? We know that inflation uh, via, you know, printing money and diluting the supply or increasing the supply of money, diluting the value of the existing supply of money is one way that prices are impacted. But Prices are also impacted by supply and demand, right? Maybe maybe there's just something that's difficult to get right now because whatever happened, happened. Maybe there's a natural disaster and something happened and now getting this certain raw material is difficult and that brings down the supply for this industry and this thing and it shoots the price up for, for those products and services, right? Or maybe the exact opposite. Maybe uh, some, some, you know, cool innovation or, you know, some something is done where uh, it's a little easier to make, to make these products and services. Maybe there is a, um, you know, there's a bunch of new factories that are built and they're able to push more supply uh, driving down the price or, you know, who, yeah, who knows, you're right? getting into a lot of like the hard economics behind like what the housing market would be. I think the only difference between the classroom housing market socialism example. And I do like that story because I mean, yeah, that's exactly what happens. <laughs> in socialism that talent doesn't come out of it i mean at the end of the day i think that's truly why america is america because we still on a very small glimmer you can still get really rich here you can still really 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 make it and that's important because at the end of the day talent doesn't want to live somewhere where you can't you know you can't be the next bill gates you can't be the next elon musk why why would i do all of this work if i don't get to live a different life than everybody else which I totally understand. And I also totally understand like it is about uh, more about like everybody has the same opportunity, but not everybody's going to have not going to take these opportunities and go the same places with them. So it's not really about, I guess it's not really about having the same opportunity. It's more like incentives driven, right? I mean like, and that's what we, this will tie right into our Bitcoin topic of the day towards the end towards the later part of our podcast we get to that today but uh it's all about the incentives of it right that also plays a big factor because if you're giving these large companies huge tax write-offs or they can even report capital losses on some properties so that they pay even less taxes at what point does it start really affecting the majority of even hard-working people because even in capital like the whole point of a free market is so that these really wealthy people like Elon Musk, for example, you, if we want to think he's as altruistic as he claims to be, we hope that these people who end up making a lot of money off of free market enterprise put back money into the community because they know that at the end of the day, that's what will also get them more money. But they can't really do that if they need to go through this government and do all these tax incentives and do it a certain way and basically do it through the government. Um then we're not really getting the right incentive structure. And I think that does teeter some of like, even the housing market, it just teeters it out of place to where we're at today. You mm. need you working, your girl working, 
your kids working, you want to own a home, you want to stay in there, you want to have like the necessary cash flow to also live a life and own a home, you need to make a lot of money. And not everybody, I mean, like money just doesn't work that way as we know. So I think it's more about incentives. And that's what's really important about the one Bitcoin is one Bitcoin. Inflation is inflation is theft. Inflation is one of the worst things society has accepted. And that's kind of what Sailor was talking about a lot on this podcast. And he's like, that's what in Bitcoin we don't have to ever do. Because it's not about, oh, I have um I have 200 homes and I rent them out to everybody and I make all this money and yada, yada, yada. Well, even at a certain point, you know, that's going to get taxed by a government or get stripped away somehow or whatever. He's like, it's not about like buying some, some home that gives you like uh, equity or wealth over the next 50 years. It's all about knowing that you have money or you're in a system where the economic value of what you hold is going to be good in 2140. That's a lot of what he was talking about. It's like, it's all about, he really was saying it's just all about inflation. It's all about even that two to 3% inflation. They would say it's good, uh, but it's not because a free market, you can't dictate how much it should grow a year or not grow. And I think that's what's wrong a lot with the housing market is that it's a lot of forced growth, really. I mean, like at the end of the day. And so some of it, obviously, like you're saying, yeah, there's lazy people. There's people who probably don't deserve to be homeowners in America. But this is also the richest country in the world. So is there, is there so many people that deserve to be struggling like they are right now? Is there so many people that is everybody financially illiterate or are times just that hard? I don't know. I think it's these are fair questions to ask because in a Bitcoin standard, as we know, if you're broke, it's going to be because it's your fault. It's because you didn't save. Because in a Bitcoin world without inflation, you're not asked to even invest to keep your economic value over time. If you just want to save your money, you can just save your money. Well, and, you also factor. You also got to think back too to our conversation last week with Charlie, right? Because uh, I, I agree with you on on one of the or on on a couple of those pieces um, about you know in in the current system that we operate in, certain people stand to benefit more in the system than others, and more specifically, if you own assets, you will benefit more in this economy, in this society, in, in an inflationary society because. Money is flowing to those hard assets. I, I was just looking at a deal on Twitter um, that Dylan LeClaire was posting about um, several different things in the markets with commodities and hard assets and um, just what's what's going on within the financial markets. Um, you know, talking about the deleveraging is starting and money is going to be flowing to hard assets. So you think about the bottom, whatever percent you want to call it, right? The, the, the bottom, whatever percent that doesn't own assets, the, those people are, are going to be hammered in this time because a, they don't own, they don't own assets that, that can appreciate in value as, uh, as the currency devalues. And because they don't hold those things, what they do make becomes less and less, right? You know, it's, it's, it's just a, the same thing when they talk about inflationary times, kill fixed income, right? You talk about retirement planning. Um, 
people love building in. Uh, there's this, there's a, um, there's a book called Paychecks and Play, Paychecks versus Playchecks or something like that. Um, basically, it's this idea that in retirement, now again, this is making assumptions that we're looking at the exact same economy that we're operating in today, but um, it's this idea of let me buy, let me buy a fixed income. And Michael Saylor talks about this at one point in one of his interviews. Um, how much, how much does it cost for me to buy, you know, $50,000 in income uh, guaranteed every single, every single year? Uh, how much does it cost to buy that? Well, you, you go get some type of structured product. Typically, you know, a lot of people are using annuities now, but you could, you used to be able to do it with um, treasury bonds and things like that. Obviously now that that, now that's not the truth, you cannot do that anymore. There's like their negative real yields. Right. <clears throat> but you go stick a big lump sum of cash in this, in this product, and then it'll spit off a guaranteed X amount. And you can do that contractually with a company um, and say, here's this money, put it in these things. And I want a contractual X amount every single month for perpet into perpetuity. Right. Uh, think of, think of now, that same type of structure for the person at the very bottom of the barrel that doesn't own assets, that's, you know, maybe working an hourly job making, I don't know, 16, 17, $18 an hour, which is, Hey, like we're doing all right, you know, 16, 17, $18, something like that. They're doing all right, depending on where you live, I guess. Right. Too. That's obviously a huge factor, but, but you also got to think, so, so those people are getting hammered in that time. Now, there's also this cultural thing as well, right? Because uh, you and I grew up in what upper middle class, kind of middle middle class, somewhere around there. Would you call it? You know, so that that comes with a certain type of mindset that was passed on to us from our families, right? Now, think of the people at the very top. You know, that think of, think of Donald Trump's son. What's his What's his son's name? I can't remember. Anyways, the things that the things that kids like that that are growing up at the top of the top and the top one percent, right? The the culture and the mindset that they have, the way that they think about things, is probably different than the way that we think about them, right? And the exact same is also true on the opposite end. Um, the people at the bottom that have that have never been around. Um, oh, I'll just create a business, or oh, I'll buy assets, I'll, I'll accumulate assets. You know, if they, if if those people at the bottom have never, have never been uh, around that type of a mindset. Well, then, then there's also this cultural thing, right? Where it's like, yeah, the money's got to be sound, but like, if, if, if you're financially illiterate, if you don't understand business and how to, uh, how to really apply yourself and produce in the marketplace in order to get something back, right? Because, because that's ultimately what the market should be in my mind, right? You, the market does not reward you unless you give the market what the market wants, right? It, it, this is just simple transactions, right? If, if you know, I, just because just because I go out and I produce apples doesn't mean that everybody's just going to give me their stuff. I have to give, I have to produce the apples and then, you know, give them to someone in trade in order to receive something else, right? I mean, that's just that's just basic transactions, I, right? I guess, like, what do you think? Here's a point because I guess this podcast has turned into uh we did not we haven't even talked about the topic that we had planned yeah, here we're basically, just, we're basically yeah throwing it out the window for the day uh <laughs> i guess the question is then what should the like you live in america right what is the lowest quality of life or what is the lowest performance per se 
making money wise that you should be able to perform and still have a single income family sing and you should own a home and you could have a couple kids and every and you know what you might you might be struggling a little bit but you can still own all those things this is a different kind of struggle what type of job what type of person uh are you talking about setting like a baseline well i'm just asking like what do you what is your moral what is your ethical baseline because my baseline is honestly like i think in our society i think if you work 40 hours a week almost almost anywhere all and i do say almost anywhere but almost anywhere 40 hours a week or so you should be able to afford all those things because your money should have a lot of purchasing power behind it it should so so one thing to keep in mind here uh is economic value is is relative and here's what i mean whenever i say this so you're gonna get theoretical on me what is the what is bait what would be your baseline okay uh, I'll, I'll I'll get to the answer immediately, and then I'll and then I'll expand on it. Yes, um, I believe that that the market rewards what the market wants, right? And in, in other words, if there is demand and you are able to meet that demand, then you are rewarded for meeting that demand, right? Every everyone is entitled to a profit if if they are producing and they are making uh if they are making things happen in the market right if you're if you're a market maker and and you connect to the buyer and the seller right or you are the seller right if you're producing and meeting m- demand in the market you should be rewarded for your efforts in doing that that's just called profit right that's business i think that that is morally sound because uh the person that you're you're working with is benefiting right in 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 the sense that they get what they want, right? They're able to buy the product or service that they want, right? And, and, and it's, I always simplify this down to products and services, right? Um, but that's really, that's like the, the all-encompassing kind of terms there. Um, so they benefit because they get to buy the, the good or service that they want. And you benefit because you're getting to sell it to them and make a profit, right? To pay for your production costs, to pay for your overhead expenses. And... Ideally, there's some profit on top that allows you to live your life the way that you want to live your life, right? So, in that sense, I believe that that's how it should be, and I don't, th- I don't think that there should be a baseline. I think that if we're talking about free open markets, right? This is, I mean, this would be the same thing as saying, "Hey, we're going to set a price, a price ceiling here," because you know that that's, I mean, that's kind of where this heads, right? Is like. No, 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 no. That's not really what my question is, though. I understand where you're. I'm not thinking about this from some social. I'm just asking okay. you. In 1971, yeah, you the the predominant most homes were single income families, single income families owning homes. That was the majority of homeowners in 19 50 years ago. Should that still be a thing? Should that is is that what should be happening today? Is really what I'm asking, and because yeah. the baseline then, hmm. dude, baseline then was way lower, really, when you think about it, than it is today. And we didn't set any, we didn't set any uh, type of, you know, per se, like housing, uh, what would it be like cost limits or whatever. Like I, we didn't do any of that, but people still don't own homes. So I guess that's all I'm trying to say is, what is your baseline in terms of? What should somebody's 
day-to-day look like? What kind of job should a man or a woman have to support a single-income family home? What should they have to do? What type of job should they have to, like, have in in order to do that? Because I think it's just like like you're saying, yes, there's a, there's a lot that encompasses this question because they have to go out there and they have to make money. They have to have talent to make money. But that's kind of the issue, isn't it? Not everybody's talented. So not everybody's going to go out there and make money. I mean, to be quite honest in America. I mean, and, and I think, and I, but I think that that's a, I think that's a fair system, right? Cause if you spend, you, you were talking about, you were talking about 40, 40 hours a week, right? Let's just use 40 hours a week as a base. If you spend 40 hours a week and you are doing manual labor, I, I did manual labor for my grandpa whenever I was in high school, he owns a masonry company in Stoughton, Wisconsin, brickworks masonry, does a lot of historical work. It's really cool stuff. And so whenever I was in, uh, whenever I was in high school, I'd go there in the summers and I was a, I was like a laborer. I was just a laborer. I was mixing mortar. I was moving, you know, moving brick and block and stone from this place to that place. And, you know, I was cleaning things up, making sure that the Masons had fresh, new tampered mortar, making sure that they had all the material that they need, making sure everything was good to go. Right now that, that 40 hours a week, I think has less economic impact than 40 hours a week spent as a CEO making large level decisions for a huge company. Okay, that's fine, but you're missing my point because but but this is but this is what I'm saying. Able to own one home and support your one. I'm not saying should you both own the same quality of home? Should you both have KitchenAid, everything in your kitchen and Mm -hmm. granite countertops? No, I'm asking should you just both be able to own a home? And have a family, and and you, and you can at this point you that. can do that. You can't do that. You absolutely, can't. you can. No, you, you can't. You absolutely no, can. you yep. can't. That's now, not now. Thing. Now, if I you if like you, you haven't taken a look at what the fuck happened in 1971 in a while, because if you look at the disparity between wages and housing prices and productivity, I mean it's it's so far outpaced it. Because my whole point here is the housing market is so inflated. You, the American dream is dead and the the right to own property, life, liberty and the pursuit of property, which really changed the pursuit of happiness because the government won't let everybody own a damn home. But the li- life, liberty and like the pursuit to own property, because everybody deserves to own property in America. Everybody should have an equal opportunity to have a home. And I think that money is so fake now. This is just what I think. I think money is so fake that it has taken the ability for the average person to own a home. They have to go to great lengths to strive to get a home when really owning a home should be a much more so-so situation. It should just be, oh, you own a home, good for you, nice, good for, like good for you, but you shouldn't. it shouldn't be some major fucking accomplishment. It shouldn't be that fucking hard, especially if we have 30-year loans to do so. And I think a lot of it's because we're obviously money is so fake. Inflation is so high. The housing market is up so many percentage points year over year. I mean, it's just it's there's never really been a correction for the inflation. And so that's my that's really my argument. It's I under I I'm honestly with you. Not everybody deserves the same. Not even close. I mean, there there will be poor people. But I just think that it is far too difficult to just own your home, have a family, live your life. Because I recognize at the very end of the day, 
there is there is never going to be equitable talent in America. There is always going to be way more talented people than other people, and they're going to make way more money. If you gave everybody in the world $100 today, the smart people will find a way to get all the money. That's how they always do it. But the problem is, is that the dumb people, I guess, for lack of a better term, the dumb people don't want the mansions that the rich people have. And if they do, then we can explain to them that you need to go make more money or be more talented. Most people just want to own a damn home. They just want to live in a home. They just want to have something they call home. And they don't really want to have to, you know, choose a specific state to live in, to live in the home. They don't want to have to, you know, stretch their budgets extremely thin just to own a home. And I don't really, I mean, like, if you look historically, America is a powerful economy. You didn't always have to. But then all of a sudden they said, oh, no more gold standard. We're just going to go on this fiat. And I just am saying that it's just, we've, we're so far gone that it's just, it's just too damn, I mean, it's too damn hard for most people. I'm not saying it's too damn hard for, I don't own a home yet. I personally can go make enough money to go own a home and I don't have to, I I don't per se have to move. Do I want to own one? That's a whole different question. But should you have to do what I do to just own a home? I absolutely do not think so. Should you have to be some high level sales salesperson or be high up in a company or work for a private company and you know be an integral part like you are and make a lot of money that way? Uh, I just don't. Oof! I just don't think you should. It should be this hard. That's really my point. But to your point, yeah, not everybody's going to own one. I mean, no, not everybody. But it shouldn't be this hard at the same time. Somebody who puts in a 40-hour work week for, let's say, Worthington Steel and is welding the steel and doing a great job for America, yada, 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 that brother should get to go home, drink a beer at his house, (laughs) on his porch, whatever, and it shouldn't cost so much. It just shouldn't. And honestly, really, money shouldn't be so shitty that you need 30 years worth of your time to buy this home. Look at that. 30-year mortgages start in 1971. Or this is saying, thanks to Freddie Mac, there's solid data available for 30-year fixed mortgage rates beginning in 1971. Uh, it's also interesting. You know, think think of think of this here. Uh, look at this. When did 401ks start? And guess what? It's also right in the 70s. Dude, uh, right, right in the seventies, man. There was a lot of stuff happening that that I think was, um, man, dude. It really changed the landscape of things. I mean, because think of this, think of this, think of the manipulation here. And this is just kind of a thought experiment. But you, you take the you take the country off the gold standard, right? And that that inherently then then begins the printing press and the the real the real expansion of the credit economy right um now we're playing with monopoly money right and and, and credit is really starting to expand fast okay now then we're going to then we're going to start using you know mortgages to instead of instead of buying now we'll just buy over time right and we'll pay some rate on it based on what we think, what we think the future is going to be, right? Um, so then, so then, because because we're not buying right now today, we're uh, we're we're buying it over thirty years. Well, then we can we can boost how much we could we would actually pay, right? Because we don't have to have you know we we looked at the median home price was that four hundred thousand. The median sale price, I guess it was, 
was 412,000. Well, I don't have to have $412,000 today to buy my house anymore. Right now, if I've got, you know, I don't know what that would be in a, in a monthly mortgage payment, you know, 2000 bucks or whatever, whatever it would be. Um, but if you got to pay, you know, 2000 bucks a month, okay, now I've got to increase my cash flow. Okay. So then if I just increase my cash flow, instead of just having a bunch of cash on hand, if I could increase my cash flow, well, I can leverage myself into more and, and I could, you know, if you're just an individual and you want to just buy a house for your family, right? Okay. I, I, if I can get more cash flow, if I can make some more money, then I could buy a nicer home. Uh, but I don't have to save up all the time that it takes to save up for X amount of home. Uh, but then also on the, on the manipulation side, if, if we know that people are buying homes over 30 years, right? 30 year fixed mortgage mortgages, of course there's 15, there's different products, right? But, um, just thinking about super basic stuff here. Um, now we can pump the prices of, of those assets via printing money. And, uh, and, and, you know, it's also funny too, to think that all the people that are closest to the printing press here in the United States, all the politicians, they're, they're all, they're, they're all rolling in the dough, right? I mean, they own assets, they own tons and tons of real estate. They own, they own equities, they own these things and the policies that they, that they are uh, moving and making to print and make more money uh, to pay for this and pay for that, to expand the credit economy they benefit from it the most because they own all the assets. You know, what's pretty crazy is I'm not, I don't mean to get political at all with this, but <clears throat> how do you just, I, I just wrote this down as we were talking because this is what it made me think. Cause I think we're on the same page now. We were all, we were not on the same page there for a while because it was like, I mean, I understand what you're saying in terms of not everybody's the same talent, but at the same time, that's not everybody's fault. You know, not everybody. Well, no, hold on. That's not true, though. That's not true. But no, but you're saying that not everybody's going to not life isn't basically life is not fair. (laughs) Like you're not just we can't make everybody have the same thing. It's not like socialism doesn't work, period, whatsoever. Any form of it does not work that I was really just trying to ask. I think it was hard for me to get around to the point where I'm asking, why is it just so damn hard to own a home and monetary debasement really has led to that for and now leading into this. How do you silently destroy America economically? We put we posed economic warfare on Russia. How do you destroy the world superpower basically from within? You make money fake and you just destroy the middle class's quality of life. Hmm. And how do you really do that? Don't let them own homes. That's I mean, like that's what I was just thinking of just in here. I don't know if that's political or not, but I mean, at the very end of the day, what is middle class anymore? How much money do you have to make? And you consider a middle class life, the ability to own a home, probably have one or two kids, you know, have a steak dinner with the kids every Friday, whatever, take them to the movies, have a little extra money for mini golf, whatever. I don't know. Take a vacation once a year, whatever your middle class life should be in America. How do so you- it looks like looks like the this survey here is is dictating fifty two thousand dollars to one hundred and fifty six thousand um, dollars is is what they're calling uh, the median income uh, in in that middle class area here. So How much is, money? Um, let me see here. I'm pulling up a couple of different charts here, I'm trying to find what makes the most sense here for. Um, it said it said the one that I saw just a second ago was fifty two thousand up to 
156,000, which is a pretty big range there. But that's why there's, you know, there's like the middle class, but then there's lower middle class, mid middle class, and then upper middle class, right? Well, also it varies on what region you're in. And yeah, yeah, there's tons of variables for sure. I'm sure there's a place in America. I'm sure there's some hellhole you can live in in Mississippi somewhere or like the middle of nowhere in Nebraska and you can buy a home and pay a thousand dollar a month mortgage for it. I'm sure there is, but that's not really a fair, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, are we telling the middle class they have to migrate to where affordable housing is? So are we having to create affordable housing for our middle class? That's a, I mean, I just think it's so funny because the elites in our country in my opinion, it does seem rather malicious at this point towards the middle class of people. They're undoing, like they're undoing their own fantasy life they have right now. You don't want to piss off the middle class. You don't want to make their life hard. That's why I don't think it's American elitists who are doing it. I don't think they're smart. I think it's more malevolence. Like they don't really understand why it's happening. Inflation, whatever. It's a lot to understand. And I think there's a huge globalist push. Yeah, but I just think I don't think yeah, I just don't think most rich people understand like they don't think they're sh- they don't think they're doing anything wrong. They don't think, you know, what they're doing is shitty. They don't think they don't it's hard to understand somebody else's life and be in somebody else's shoes unless you're in them. And it's not like they go they, like you said, they're just talented, they're making fucking money, inflation's not affecting them the same. It's not their fault at at that respect as well. We're talking about and we know whose fault it is. It's the damn money printers that have destroyed America's middle class because yeah. we just, it, the wages just have not been able to keep up. How can you run a small business if people are asking for $30 an hour? Because well, really, I, I, I don't know that it's necessarily that wages haven't kept up. They haven't like, kept up. It's, not with the, productivity. it's the purchasing power of those wages, right? It's, like it's all of it, right? I mean, like know, I mean, all yeah, of it. Absolutely. Wages haven't kept up with productivity, but they also haven't kept up with, yeah. with, assets and there is no until now there has been no truly scarce asset that you can buy and your value gets you know defeats inflation over time until now there's only 21 million of them it's bitcoin any middle class person and if you're listening to this it's not financial advice but buy the shit out of bitcoin okay because nobody will ever be able to debase your bitcoin and stuff like this won't happen anymore to you because at the end of the day you can't debase a hard money standard. The world might change, but you cannot get debased. Yeah, it's just, I mean, it's, there's just so many glaring factors where I'm for, I'm for one, go be a one percenter, man. Everybody should strive to live that life or to go make that money or what, what have you. And you should strive to do it in a, in my opinion, in an honest way. Like you should strive to do it in a way where you're really giving something to the world where you're really producing something for people, but anybody should strive to make a lot of money. It's just that since we got off a gold standard, since there's nothing that we have to base our money to, and we live in a credit world, it disproportionately is helping some and really hurting others. And I just, I mean, you don't need the whole point of free market capitalism is it gives everybody the best quality of life. That's why in America this is not free market capitalism because people are getting sh- shuttered right now. Look at look at this here. So this is uh, New York and Boston here in this example. 
median home prices in New York and Boston are in blue and yellow here. And then the median household income for those same places um, in red and black. And so you can see that uh, median household income has, has increased, yeah. but at, at a much faster pace, you got the home values up. There's just only so much you can do because right. if you're a middle of the road dude, you know what I'm saying? Some of you is subject to what your business will pay for your labor. Mm-hmm. And you can have some good negotiating skills and even get a good raise. But what's a good raise in 8.5% inflation? <laughs> like like 14% because we're not even talking about keeping up with housing prices. What should what should and I don't not everybody feels this way and I don't really know the answer to this question. Was minimum wage developed for like, should you have been able to own a home on minimum wage back in the day? Like, could you own a home on minimum wage back in the day? Was it designed for that? Or I'm not too sure. But I will say this. If it was, there's no way in hell you're buying a home with, with minimum wage. You're not even coming close. And that should be the biggest telltale sign to everybody. Like, Everybody always gets up in arms. We always fight with each other because there's looks a lot of like problems. minimum wages were first put in place by the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938. Well, everybody can argue all the doodah day long about, you know, should minimum wage buy a home anymore, this, that, or the other thing. I think it's just another divisive technique by our government. <laughs> like, you're you're poorer than Fair me. Enough. You shouldn't own a home. Well, you're you only you only do this much more than me. You should. We should all we should all be telling them to go, well, you know, to kind of go shove it where the sun doesn't shine because it's like, no, money should just be buying more for everybody. As technology gets better, life should be getting more deflationary. The only reason why America is inflationary is because central authority, probably insurance companies, and at this point, there's people the 1% does far outweigh a good portion of our country. Even the top 10% far outweighs a part of our country to where they're buying so much stuff. It's inflating these housing prices so greatly. Now it is helping some middle-income Americans, but you want to know what the question is for the rich versus the middle income right now? The rich are like, while my housing price is going up, let me refinance this bad boy and buy three more. A middle-class human being is going, holy fuck, my home's never going to be worth this much again. I should sell it, pay off all my debt, and you know, try to shut her down and buy a house again with my new money or my new life. Yeah. So middle class is going, man, maybe I can get a new life. The rich people are going, let's buy five more. And I'm not saying either. And, and the people that don't own anything are at the bottom just getting just absolutely just destroyed. Yeah. We're just praying that these interest rates go back to 0% again. And we just will all just barrel into the housing market as best we can again, because it's really more about interest rate than it is about price. See, so, yeah. okay. So hold on. So I got to, I got to tell you a little bit about, um, uh, again, to refer back to the Bitcoin standard. So, uh, and I think, did I read something? Did I read this? I can't remember if I posted this. I did. It was the state of lending episode that I had posted. I read this. Um, I don't know if you. I don't know if you'd ended up listening to that one, but basically, in a sound money standard, um, the available capital for lending should be the should be people's foregone consumption. And what he explains that means is that if Griff, if you and I make X amount of dollars and we've got this money that we need to use to 
to to pay for to pay for living, right? To pay for food and water and um, you know living the lifestyle that we live. But then we have some extra, and we forego consumption of it today so that we can save it for tomorrow or um, you know whatever it is. Right? We're going to save it for something into the future. Um, we can just save it, you know, we're talking about a sound money standard. Let's just talk about the Bitcoin standard, right? We want to save our Bitcoin. Um, we don't want to do anything with it. We just want to hold it. We just want it to store our value or, or, and I think that this is something that'll probably evolve over time. And, you know, I haven't heard a whole lot of people talking about it, um, exactly on how it'll work, but of course I I think this is kind of the staking deal and I I don't know, staking is a little weird, but, um, the idea would be then. Or I could I could save it or I could put it in a lending pool and say, hey, I'm willing to I'm willing to lend out some of my money to, to give it to somebody else that, that needs to use it for their business. And that is a risk to me. So I want to be compensated for that. And sure. so I'm going to put my my Bitcoin in this lending pool. Right. And that's what creates the amount of uh, of lendable capital a and. The market, the individual sets the price of the money, right? Because if nobody has, if nobody has any lendable capital, but people need a ton of money to start their business, I, they've got this great business idea, and they're going to do this and that and this and that. But, but, but I don't have the money to do it. I need, I need help with my money. So he's going to go out as an investor. He's going to pitch it um, to people, or sorry, he's going to go out and pitch to investors, and and hopefully somebody has some lendable capital that they'll give him at X rate. Uh, that they are happy with, and he's happy to get the money to go and employ it in his business plan, right? Um, the the market individuals should set the price for money, right? So you talk about like a zero percent, a zero percent rates for money. That's not quite good uh, because if if everybody can get money for free, let's just call it for free to make which they kind of have been recently, which they which very well they have been. I mean, at one point, yeah. interest rates were negative. You were getting paid to take shit. You know, it was like, <laughs> it's fucking uh, crazy. Yeah, I don't know why we did it because we just weren't we didn't have enough. Uh, we didn't have enough liquid. I mean, we just don't have enough money yet. Yeah. And so, you know, it's uh, it's wild because. Again, this just goes back to the the central government trying to set things, right? So here's the question. Here's the question. So um, if the if the central government is going to centrally plan our economy, then where are they going to go? Who are they going to talk to to get all of the market information, to do all of the market analysis that they've got to do to understand? Okay, well, uh, we're gonna we're gonna set we're gonna set the price of uh, you know homes in this area at this price. Well. Uh, you know, at this point, they they do things on a on a national scale. Um, you know, how how are things different uh, here in Tulsa, Oklahoma versus Sacramento, California? Is everything the same? No. Well, why is it not the same? Oh, well, there's differences in uh, where you can get raw raw materials, right? So maybe you know, like in construction, right? Uh, um, certain finishes are are more are more expensive in certain areas because they're not native to that area. So you've got to ship, you've got to ship them in, right? They're, they're more specialty products. A, a great example of this is something like uh, manufactured stone that gets placed on homes versus brick, right? And in, in some places, brick can be super effing expensive and it doesn't make sense to do it because there's not a lot of brick made in that area. There's not a lot of clay in that geographical area. So They've got to ship the brick in from somewhere else. Brick's pretty heavy, so it, t- it costs some money to ship it, right? 
Whereas uh, here in Oklahoma, there's tons of clay all over the place. Brick is super cheap and economical here, right? So, uh, but but the but the main piece is that the individual market actors they set the price levels by voting, right? And they vote with their dollar. They vote with whatever that currency is by where they put their money, right? Because it's, it's at that point in, then it's supply and demand. If if I'm putting all of my dollars toward product or service A, well, and everybody else does that as well, then that, there's a lot of demand there, right? And if there's maybe not as much supply, well, then then the value, the price of that thing is going to go up. Now, could the central government do that? Yeah, but they would have to come. They would have to come talk with me and all the other market actors that are demanding this thing. You know, that's that's never going to work. That's never going to work. Or so either the central government has to go out and they have to do surveys all day, every single day for everyone in the in the country. Or we could let the market run itself. We could let the market find equilibrium. Right. We can let every individual vote with their with their spending. Right. Wherever you spend your money, wherever you consume from, wherever you produce, that's what creates the market. Right. I think that's the I think that's the main deal there. <sighs> well, maybe next week we'll talk about Bitcoin. Maybe next week we'll talk about Bitcoin. But hey, this was a great episode, man. This was some good topics that uh, we haven't quite gotten into yet. We we have talked about a ton of Bitcoin here recently, and so it, it was nice to talk about some other things that are going on in the markets because because we've had these conversations for a while, for a while too. You know, where we thought we've talked about kind of the real estate things and what what we're wanting to do in that. And, I will say to close it off for myself today, I would have never even cared about any of this in economics because I was an economics major in college. And as Nick knows, we just skated through smart enough to just get it done. You know what I'm saying? But how much did I really learn? I can look back in hindsight now and say I learned some things. But Bitcoin, once you start diving into sound money and like learning about what a Bitcoin standard might be or what a Bitcoin economy might be it does lead you into other things and gives you different opinions on a housing market because a closed minded view of the housing market is, well, if you don't make enough money, it is what it is. Tough luck, you know, move on. And that's what a lot of people in America are bred to do. I mean, like that's what, like that's the American way of life. Just put your head down and work, 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 work. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the, what Bitcoin makes you do is it freaking pulls your head up from the mud and goes, Oh, what's the government doing? Oh, how is the game being played? And you just kind of get to look at life from a different perspective. Once you realize, I mean, really, and all that's different between me and most average, you know, the average person who doesn't really believe in Bitcoin yet. I've read enough about Bitcoin, listened enough, talked to enough people to understand that if we adopt this form of money, the quality of life for the average person will get a hell of a lot better and almost every in one bitcoin will always be one bitcoin because I, I don't know every person i've talked to that has really dove deep into this even the ones who own a lot of it they want to see the average person's life get better they don't like the system we're in right now they understand it's not very equitable and through bitcoin i've learned just a little bit about the housing market i think it'd be cool to get somebody on who knows more than we do even uh, just like to ask these questions. Cause a lot of what we were doing today is just asking, getting ready for somebody to come on to ask a bunch of questions because we know some, we, we can follow the charts. We follow a lot of this stuff, but 
to, to think you're an expert in everything. It takes hours to be experts in certain things. And uh, I like Bitcoin more than I like to study housing markets, but uh, <laughs> to each is everybody's own. But those are my closing thoughts on the day, Nick. I just want to say studying Bitcoin leads you to a lot of stuff and it just mm-hmm. gives you a whole new perspective on everything, really, to be perfectly honest with you. Absolutely. Those were good closing thoughts there. Um, that was uh, that was kind of a fun one. We uh, we haven't had to have or we haven't gotten to have one of those conversations about kind of more more non Bitcoin related things in a little while. So that was good, man. I'm excited we got to have that one. Uh, thank you guys for listening to another episode of the Nick and Griff Show. Hit us on Twitter down there uh, at Nick and Griff Show on Twitter. Come talk with us. Uh, we're looking for more guests. We want to share more ideas, more perspectives with everybody else uh, to try to form more of a well-rounded perspective and idea of what we believe the world is for ourselves. So, um, and, and hopefully we're helping people do that along the way as well. So um, hit us on Twitter at Nick and Griff show. If you're not watching on YouTube, you can check us out on YouTube. It is Nick and Griff show there as well. Um, you could also see that. I think you can find that on our Twitter. We need to figure that out. Um, so yeah, excited to have another episode. We're looking forward to the next one next week. Peace.